0: You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes.
1: Ray Allen used to come up to my middle school all the time. So uh, what it meant for me was free tickets and to uh, you know, act up in class. You know, you get to you get to watch the game from the Raptors. It was
2: dope to see someone who was on a professional team come down and touch the youth. It just made it real. It made it real. It made it a tangible thing.
0: That's Cole Austin, recalling memories from over a decade ago when he was living in Seattle's Central District and attending middle school in Madrona. I'm Jeff Shulman. And today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast examines how a return of the NBA franchise Seattle Supersonics would affect our community's future children, such as Cole. To explore this question, the episode features an in-depth interview with legendary Sonics player Slick Watts, who has helped cultivate future NBA talent such as Jason Terry, Jamal Crawford, and more,
2: while coaching youth
0: basketball in Seattle for the last few decades.
2: As you know, I'm from the South, and when you're from the South, you don't have the opportunity to do what these kids are doing. You don't have gyms and coaches. I told him the other day, Abraham Lincoln freed the slave, but the governor of Mississippi didn't get the text. (laughs) So all we could do was work in the fields. You'll also hear from Colin Davenport,
0: who grew up in Seattle while the Sonics were here. He describes the role the Sonics played in
1: shaping his life. Things like going in sixth grade with my friends, who none of us were rich enough to really afford to even go to games when they were $9, and we get to go to one game in a year, and I can still remember like what shoes each one of us is wearing.
0: And in a Seattle Growth podcast first, I asked Twitter followers to share why they want the Sonics to return. I'll share some tweets from the local Sonics fans. And finally, the episode includes an academic perspective from Pat Doble a professor at the University of Washington and writer of the popular sports blog Point of the Game. In working with collegiate athletes, Professor Doble shares what he saw firsthand as the impact of sports on personal development. And a word of warning, he cautions against expecting too much from a
3: return of the NBA. It's not clear to me that the NBA, as a cultural athletic institution, does a lot of role modeling. We are having a constructive dialogue with a diversity of opinions
0: about a potential return of the NBA here in Seattle Growth Podcast's second season. While the first season looked generally at the way that growth is transforming our city, this season focuses on what a return of the Sonics would mean to you and life in the city. And I could tell you, the story is more complex than you might imagine. A return of the NBA could be both a hallmark of the city's recent growth and a catalyst for further transformation. A transformation that would affect you. Last week, we looked at how the two arena locations under consideration would affect your commute. You heard from the director of the Seattle Department of Transportation, Scott Kubley. What you would see is probably some evening congestion as people are driving into and out of the arena. We would probably have to close Holgate, both to cars but also to pedestrians. Holgate gets used by basically anybody that wants to get across those tracks, right? So if you're trying to get onto the Spokane Street Viaduct and you're somewhere in Soto, right, you're going to want to cross those tracks either at Lander or or Holgate. You heard from Seattle Transit blog editor Martin Duke.
1: I'd say broadly speaking, for after 2035, the the pedestrian advantages in the Lower Queen Anne area are are much better than the situation in Soto. But Soto is ready now, and Lower Queen Anne won't be ready until
0: 2035. And you heard from three-time NBA All-Star Detlef Schrempf, who played at Seattle's
3: Key Arena. Key Arena was a phenomenal facility in the 90s because it was sold out every game. And it was not that difficult to get to. Now, Seattle Center is almost impossible to get to, you know, if you're coming anywhere off I-5 Freeway because Mercer Street is just a mess.
0: Earlier in the season of Seattle Growth Podcast, you heard from Wally Walker, a member of the investment group hoping to bring the Sonics back to a Soto Arena location.
3: And to get through the environmental, the traffic mitigation, all the things that come with it, just takes a very long time. Like I said, we're five and a half years in. So if it's another site, people have to get used to the idea that even before you can put a shovel ground some other place, it's probably that amount of time. So uh, we want it sooner rather than later. So that's why we, besides we think it's a great site, Soto is, is the right solution.
0: As we speak, the city is weighing the Soto proposal and a potential key arena remodel in Seattle Center. If Mr. Walker is correct about the timeline, city officials will soon be determining when Seattle could be ready to host NBA games, in addition to where such an arena would be and who would pay for it. You will want to be informed about how these decisions would affect you, so you could express your opinion while it still counts. The focus today is on our children, arguably our most precious resource. It is important to understand how the city's decisions regarding bringing the Sonics back would affect our community's future generations. To understand this, join me as I sit down with Slick Watts. I am here at Villa Academy with Slick Watts, uh, a member of the Seattle Supersonics from 1973 to 1978, who led the NBA in assists and steals in the 1975-76 season. His performance on the court was outstanding, but he is also well known for his contributions off the court,
2: which I'm excited to talk to him about uh, today. Slick, thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to have an opportunity to talk about the the good times, the bad times, and, and still the good times. <laughs> Excellent. Uh,
0: so why don't you tell me a little bit uh, about what you've been up to since your time as a Supersonic.
2: Well, it's a long story. You know, i um, been here 43 years and um, played with the Sonics, Got traded away, heartbroken, but I always loved this town, this city, because I always say it was a special place for my personality. People care about you here. People love you. I have a lot of friends here. I got I got friends that I met when I was a Sonics that I still go to the house and eat and still go visit them for Christmas. Fans that I used to meet after the games and give my headbands to people that I still know 40 years later. So I was basically, I stayed here, I love here. And since I've been away from the game, as you see, we got all those nice young, <laughs> young gentlemen's out there and ladies. Teaching them how to play basketball. We got a watch Foundation. We also have a watch Basketball Camps. Every day that school is out, when we have a holiday, we always try to find 50, 60, 60 kids to help train and try to make a difference in their life. You know, try to teach them not only basketball skills, but giving back and and uh, the motto for our basketball program, a game Basketball was a game changer for life, and um, I agree with that because um, my basketball learning had taught me how to adjust to life. You know, I tell the kids all the time, the most enjoyable thing about basketball is when you miss, you know, because you know you got some, something good going to happen because you going to make one sooner or later, and that's my, that's my philosophy, missing is good. Because you know you got opportunities to to make, you know. So we te- teach them about being able to get up when they fall down. Because success happens when you miss. Michael Jordan once said, he got two thousand misses and two thousand makes." So um, I tell them, if Mike got too many, I was a pastor, so I must have fifty thousand misses. <laughs> so so basically, we teach kids to to understand life, and and I've been doing that for. 40 years, I started with my son. Donald's 40 years old now. And I started a program with, with, back in those days, it was Seafrish Bank. And they gave us money to go all around the country to train kids. And like I say, 40 years later, I'm still, I'm still paddling. I'm still, I'm still hanging in there. So you've put a lot of your
0: time and years and life into basketball. What did basketball mean to you when you were
2: growing up? Well, it was my life, uh, Reading reason I say it was in my life, um, as you know, I'm from the South. And when you're from the South, you don't have the opportunity to do what these kids are doing. You don't have gyms and coaches. You have, I told him the other day, Abraham Lincoln freed the slave, but the governor of Mississippi didn't get the text. <laughs> so all we could do was work in the fields. So once I got to be 12 years old, my mama bought me a ball. So what I would do all day between picking cotton and working is dribble my basketball. And I would watch TV at night. I would watch great players like Lenny Wilkinson, Elgin Bailey, and people like Bob Pettit and Bob Cousy. I would watch those guys, and I would dream. I would dream of how can I get away from the Southern life. And when you're a little kid, you don't think it's ever going to happen. But through being consistent and practicing my left hand as much as my right hand, and I got to be 6'1", and I got in high school, and I got so I could really shoot. And then one day in high school, I got six 60-some points, and then one year, a coach from Drake University called me and said, Hey, I heard you could really shoot. Do you want a scholarship? And I was just, I started another person. I left Mississippi for the first time. And like I say, 43 years, I haven't been back, no more in the visit. <laughs> so it, basketball has been great for me, great for my my whole family. It has been a, a testament of pain sometimes because when we sit at the table, if you don't have a good game, you don't want to be sitting at my table. <laughs> my family rides you pretty good, but that was—that's the way we lived. And, but we understood it was from love. So basketball been love and 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 life for me. And that's the reason I'm so. Uh, I got this coat here. They offered me eighty-two hundred dollars for it in in uh, New York, and I said I'm not selling it till the Sonics come back. <laughs> so I'm holding it on and. Got my fingers crossed that some 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 good things can happen.
0: And so, basketball meant one thing to you as a young child growing up uh, in the South, in a, decades ago. And now you're dedicated to helping people learn the sport of basketball here. What is the, what do you think the meaning is to kids here in Seattle of basketball in a different time, in a different region, different city?
2: Well, now they don't have to worry about the pressure that I had to just getting out of the the city because of hard work that you was doing now in this city the kids practice so they can one day be a Husky you know one day go to Stanford one day to go to UCLA you know and I I want to hurry up and say and hope I want to feel that they practice so they can be a sonic again you know because that's the reason I want the team to come back that gave you give kids a hope to say I want to be a supersonic and as you know the type of kids that we have in the Northwest. We call them the 206 kids. Oh, uh, I taught Jason, uh, Jason Terry, uh, Jamal Crawford. All these kids w- was under me in the first and third grade. I don't like being that old, but <laughs> when I see these kids been in the league 20 years and some of them wearing headbands and and uh, they say, oh, Watch was my teacher. You know, and uh, sometimes I feel like I'm 13, but. At six or six years old, it makes me feel good. So the kids here got so many things to reach for, and and the, the thing that we teach them more, more than anything—if not professional—but they can get the best out of their own ability, and they can stay out the street, and and stay off these these victim situations that you read about the shootings and in the neighborhood. If the kids in the gym and. And doing playing the game that they love, they don't have time to be hanging around on corners, or going to the mall, and stealing, uh, stopping at Seven Eleven and grabbing a beer and taking off running, and, and becoming a victim. So we try to instill all these things in, in our kids through basketball. And so
0: you're you're working hard and building a community and giving children outlet for their their energy. Uh, What about your time here with the Supersonics has inspired you to do that here in Seattle and to do that for the the community and the children of of this city?
2: Well, like I said earlier, I'm very partial to this town. I've been here as long as I've been anywhere. I'm 65 years old, and I've been here 44 years. And um, this place taught me a lot about my growth and what it gave me more than anything it gave me a, uh, a sense of uh, independence uh, and made me feel good about myself. Uh, I told some people once before, I, um, I go into different stores, QFC, Safeway, Apperson, uh everywhere I go, people come over and talk and slick this, slick that, slick when we get the team back. It's, I just, You know, it's just family, you know, and um, uh, just being a Sonic to me has been my life, you know, and uh, don't get me wrong, I probably would have lived without them, but I never had to see how I'd feel to live without them. Once I got up here, I I gained a sense of independence. I I started liking myself even better. Uh, I I found out that uh, a shaved head was cool. Uh, You know, I mean, everything started to come together for me in my life, you know, and um, uh, my headband was cool, and I see kids your age, and older and 55 years old say I still got a headband from me that I used to wear with you and now they got kids your age you uh, know so I hit I hit so many things that that makes me feel good and make me feel lucky that I was a sonic and um, I want my my grandkids and their kids to have that same opportunity because once again we are we are major we're a major class city and I know the Seahawks is hot now and Hot for three years, but before there was the Seahawks, there was the Super Sonics, <laughs> and uh, we we just I'm just I'm just tickled to death that we might have a chance to get them back, and I was tickled to death to hear the quarterback getting on the team too, <laughs> you know, because Russell was Russell is remind me a lot of myself when I came up here, On the dog. everybody saying he was too short. The radios was talking about him. Uh, he's, he can't see over this, and he can't see over that. And now he can beat the odds. And, and uh, I used to go to I used to go to Children's Hospital every Tuesday, and he does that now. And, and so it's, it's, it's so good to have him on the team to try to get the team back, too. And I'm just hoping, fingers crossed, that it's happened. And um, I'm knocking on wood that I got 23 more years left, I hope, <laughs> in life so I could be a part of it and a, a part of going out and going as far as all the Indian reservations and everywhere. Me and my son, we was at uh, uh, Clearwater Casino Indian Reservation this weekend. We had 80 kids, and and one of the old tribe sheep came out. and he said, Slick, take a look at this. He showed me a picture when I was 19 years old, real the sonics, but he brought me an old picture of me sitting in the middle of 70, Kids at the reservation, having a camp, and now forty-four years later, I was back at that same camp. So that that, that made my day. <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine. <laughs> uh, speaking of, of stark memories, what is
0: your most what is most memorable from your playing days as a supersonic? Well,
2: that's a tough question because the most memorable days, first of all, when you when you're nobody, and you make it. And you were considered one of the top 232 athletes in the world. That's the first most important memory. Calling home. It was 62 62 guys in camp. When he told everybody to go home, I took off and went to the bathroom because I hope he didn't see me. (laughs) He say, boy. That's what he said. He said, boy, you made it. Everybody, all the guys crying. Scoop, guys who got drafted, tears in their eyes, crying, cursing. I was sitting there, couldn't believe it. Last man standing. one drafted. Last man standing. So that's a very uh, – you can't – I could never erase that memory. That's something that will stay with me the rest of my life. And then after I made it, my third, second most memory, I guess, it was we was playing a game, and I hadn't gotten a game yet that year. And we was losing, and the fans started to, 18,000 started to clapping and saying, Slick, 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 Slick. <laughs> and I called Mama. and said, Mama, I thought I was Moses. <laughs> I said, it scared me. I mean, it really did scare me to hear your name, 18,000 people all at once, chanting. And I had goosebumps. And they said, we won't slick, slick, slick. And he put, put me in the game. And I had so much energy from, from the fans. till I was like a funny cartoon. <laughs> I was going everywhere. Stealing balls, laying it up, scratching on the floor. And, and I heard an old fan tell me, Karen told me, she say, we didn't sit down for 32 minutes while you was in the game because you gave us energy. So that, that's, that's I'll never forget that. And that started my little slick thing, and and I never did forget that. And even when I got traded, I could never get that feeling back. So I always wanted to come back home, and I did. And every year, once I left, I always came back here and did my summer camps. And then my son got old enough to uh, take over the range because as a teacher, I never liked to. Teach without being able to demonstrate. And that's the only thing that God punishes us all with. Father, times so let you know you can't do what you used to do. So that I kind of hate teaching for that reason because I be want to show. And my son got so he could show why I do a lot of talking. So we, we, we're a good combination. He got the legs and I still got the rings. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so what is, your, what is your most memorable moment or accomplishment with Watts basketball?
2: Well, basically, as you look around here, every, every school day, when there's not a school day, to have some kids, give them a place to go, a constructive place to go, and not just teach basketball, once again, Teach failure and success. I'm a big fan. of When you leave my camp, I want to make sure that week that you got a an off hand. And the first thing I always tell them: start brushing their teeth with both hands and stuff like that. And I know once I learned how to dribble with both hands, I became a pro. And then I always use, I always use Stephen Curry as an example. People look at him now because he's MVP. But that was the time he was considered a midget. That was the con- time he was considered he wasn't going to make pro. And I always tell them, paying attention to, to, to details, believing in yourself, putting in the time, and never practice on a shot just to shoot it. Always shoot thinking that's the last shot you're ever going to take. And I tell them that because I—that's where Steph practiced. That's why I used to practice, and uh, with TV and stuff like that, I would probably never get the exposure of Steph got. I understand that, but that's the same attitude I used to have as a player. I never wasted a play, defense or offense. I ain't say how good I was, but I never wasted a play. You know, I always put all everything I had in it. You know, so that's the key. I, that's the key I try to tell kids.
0: And so who are some notable alumni of the Watts basketball program?
2: Well, my son, I always say, Don I Watts is, is the best because that's my boy, and I taught him a lot. Um, Nate Robinson, you know, he shared some time with us. Jamal Crawford. Uh, JT, Jason Terry, is my favorite because he keeps me alive with the headband. <laughs> and he's such a good speaker. I would heard him talk a few times, and, and every time he sees me, he gives me a lot of love. So uh, I always appreciate him. And Jamal Crawford, I called him the, the slick watch with money. <laughs> That's what I called him. I did a lot of stuff when I was a Sonic. And I gave kids free tennis shoes. They cost $2 a piece. He'd be giving them free shoes, cost two fifty, And plus he can afford to go get a gym. I did all my in the parking lot. At McDonald's, <laughs> you know, so on the concrete, so it was a different time, but we we both had a lot of energy for the community, and every time I see him, I tell him how much I respect him, you know, and he said, "No, I got this from you." I said, "No, I say I was just giving love. You giving love and money." <laughs> I said because I was making forty-three grand a year, and my school teachers pay is about thirty thousand more than that now. So, uh, so I always teach him about how much he gives back, too, you know. So basically we got quite a few uh, kids. um, uh, Husky, James Everett's son, he comes through and works with us a lot, and we feel privileged to – James Everett's played in the league 25 years, and it's a privilege to uh, teach his son because he's a 20-year vet, you know, championship team, Detroit Pistons, Chicago Bulls. And we had the opportunity to to, – to also uh, teach Wiley Walker's son, a guy who's got two championships, so he trusts us with his son. But you know, Wiley's a different case because he's a uh, he's a good man. I always t- I always call him my savior. You know, when he when he took over the team, they used to have a an alumni team to go out and serve the community and show the community that we loved them. And and a lot of guys w- would would. Miss appointments and stand people up. And he got rid of all of them. He say, I'm a high gas. You know, that's my going now, gas me. He said, take care of business, slick. They don't call me. And so he gave me the job. I used to go everywhere because when I tell people I was going to be there, I was going to be there. So while I always, I always tell him, he was my savior, he kept me working with the community because he knew, he knew that I used to do this stuff for steak and potatoes, he was giving us fifteen hundred dollars, so oh man, I thought I was rich. <laughs> so, you know, it's been a, it's been a blast. It's been, and it's still fun.
0: And so, if somebody wanted to help you achieve your mission with Watts Basketball, is there any way that somebody can get involved or contribute? They
2: can always um, get in touch with us at watchbasketball.com uh, Our watch foundation is um, listed on there also, so they can contribute by doing that and. Um, we always asking people to help kids that are in need and families that are in need. I even collect coats and stuff during Christmas and stuff like that because then I give them to the homeless, especially during the holidays. But if you can, just yes, WW watch basketball. And if you forget all that, as I tell the kids that don't know me, only their parents know me. Google me <laughs> Got to get me on the Google You know So I always tell them Google me You don't know me So Google me If you Google me All our events come up too You know It's used to And this is my joke here uh, Back in the days When you Google me Donald I used to come up first Now you know who come up first Donald Trump <laughs> I get mad when I see that but I, that's my little tease. I say I used to be the first Don to come up. Now, Don Trump knocked me out of my first place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's my little running joke. I say Donald Trump took me out of first place. <laughs>
0: uh, so two more questions, um, one of which is, if the Sonics do return, what would you ask of the players based off of your experience? Uh, what do you hope the players
2: will do or, or learn from you? Well, I, I know two things. If the sons do return, Wally and, and Mr. Hansen I'm hoping be would be the ones that are in charge. And it would be a no brainer. I know how Wally and and, and and Mr Hansen feel about the community. And you know Russell Wilson he ain't gotta be a part of it. Uh, just just support the people who love you. You know, reach out because it, i always said two things in my life if i woke up one morning and and everybody in the world was gone disappeared but me i'd be scared Ooh, i'd be scared to death and that's the same approach with with, with basketball look at the seahawks imagine them playing with the empty 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 stadium so so they got a saying saying the nba about Fans make this game. Well, people make this game. Matter of fact, people make all games. Without the fans, you don't want to shake and bake. You don't. Wanna, you don't want to go long and catch the touchdown. That's reason a lot of people don't like practice because there's no fans that see them. So fans make this game, and be good to the fans, and 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 don't just fake it. Just just treat people. Just treat people like you want to be treated. I don't care how good you are. You're going to be a fan one day. <laughs> hey, you're going to be a fan one day. He Michael's a fan now. He's a rich fan because he get all the team, but he's a fan. <laughs> so I'm just tell him to take care of the people because they take care of you. Any concluding thoughts? Um- if there any hope, you know, I, I use one of my prayers. Hear, hear, hear that prayer of mine. Breeze bring out, you know, give a chance to the expansion. And I hope that um, new CBA collection. Bargain, go good, because once they started expanding, that money go good for them, they would open up and give an expansion team. And I do believe we're on the top of the list. You know, I do believe that. So, uh, you know, fingers crossed. I don't have a lot of time, so I hope it's five or six years. <laughs> so come on back, team. Because yeah. I, uh, I miss those Wednesdays and Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays and not putting other games down. But one thing about basketball – Basketball is a game that when you go, you can see people. You can you can look people in the eyes. And halftime, you can see old friends. And you go to a room and you eat and you have a few drinks. And while football is so many and and it's a different crowd, you know. And, and basketball is, is a basketball really is an event. It's, it was always a game that that we always look forward to playing and going. So that's when I wish, hope hope the team come back and um. And give all these little kids that you see out here a chance to say, we got the Sonics. And I know they're going to keep the same name, so I ain't worried about that. you are going to be the Super Sonics. Look, <laughs> like your your laughter's huh?
0: infectious. Uh, your passion's uh, quite admirable and appreciated. And, and I thank you for your time and perspective here today. Very, very nice to meet you.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much.
0: We've got more interviews to come here on Seattle Growth Podcast. But first, I asked Sonics fans on Twitter why they want the Sonics to return and where they should play. Many responded, and here's a few for you. Tom Jalanella wrote, It's been nine years, right? Time to bring them home and build an arena. Build does not equal five more years of politics and red tape. Hashtag Sonics. Chad, whose Twitter handle is atctownfan73, wrote, My 15-year-old son loves basketball and would love to take him to hashtag Sonics games again. Prefer Soto Arena. Key is too many years out. The Twitter handle at NBA back to Seattle wrote, since the city took away basketball during my childhood, I want the Sonics back. At Atwater2 wrote, the realization that I'm unable to take my kids, 13 and 15, to Sonics games as my parents did with me is maddening. In Soto by 2020. To understand how children are affected by the presence of professional sports, such as the NBA, I interviewed Pat Doble, and he questions the kind of impact the NBA would have in role modeling for Seattle's children. Before we get to that interview, join me as I sit down with Colin Davenport, a Seattle resident who credits the Sonics with helping him find purpose in his life. I'm here with Colin Davenport, a freelance sports writer in the Seattle area and a basketball coach. Colin, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? I'm a Seattle native, uh, born and raised right near the UW. I now go to the UW, finishing up my bachelor's degree. Uh, And I'm currently the head coach at Hazel Wolf Middle School for their girls program. I also am assistant director of player development for one-on-one basketball, a program that coaches kids' after-school programs and um, outside-of-school summer camps, weekend programs to develop player talent. And then I cover the Seattle Storm, Washington Huskies, and high school basketball in the Seattle area for different websites. What did the Sonics mean to you while they were here? The Sonics for me were introduction to not just pro sports, but sports in general. Um, my parents, as a lot of parents do, they say we well, need to get this kid an after school activity. I did chess from kindergarten through fourth grade, but you know, in third grade my parents are going, he has a ton of energy, we've got to get something else for him to do. And so they really were going, well, maybe we should try basketball for him. They weren't really into football because they knew about the injury risks. My dad had played football in middle school and a little bit in high school, and he had gotten severely injured, so they were really not into that. Um, baseball, they were. You know, we were a poor family, so looking at the cost of you know, buying a brand-new baseball bat and a glove and a uniform every year. And, and basketball was, here's a $5 ball, here's the $50 registration fee, and you're good for the year, essentially. So they really pushed me into that. And it was at an age at nine where you 're sort of outgrowing cartoons and superheroes you start stop going, "I want to be Superman when I grow up and so that just it's let me still live in that sense of awe and wonder and then go out there and try to do it myself on a on a short basketball hoop or try to touch the net and then eventually you know getting older, taking it seriously, and playing in middle school and then high school and going all the way to tryouts here at North Seattle and Shoreline Community Colleges and eventually playing overseas in London in college for a year. And just having that passion for it, it it just really gave me that introduction to pro sports, sports in general, competition, and what it means to work towards a goal. When you're nine, it's really hard to say, well, if you do really good in your homework, you get an A. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, if you come into a situation, they go, if you do really good in this game, you'll win. You can see that. It's tangible, and you get to celebrate with your teammates and your friends, and you get to build lifelong relationships as a result. So the Sonics were directly responsible for that for me.
0: And do you have a favorite memory of the Sonics, whether it's
1: in person or on TV? So I have two different ones. For, in terms of like a single moment, my favorite moment in Sonics history is a very random one. Vin Baker shot a game-winning shot that hit the back of the rim, hit the top of the backboard twice, and went in. And I'm still, I was nine years old when that happened, and it's still watching the video of it. It's just one of the weirdest, coolest things I've ever seen on a basketball court. And then there's just things like going in sixth grade with my friends who none of us were rich enough to really afford to even go to games when they were $9. And we get to go to one game in a year. And I can still remember like what shoes each one of us is wearing. And if I talk to this person, they'll remember. And we snuck down courtside for the last minute of the game. And just having that memory and that that shared experience to this day, be able to go to that person, you know, haven't seen them in person in 10 years. But if I message them on Facebook, wherever they are in the world, they'll go, yeah, I remember that. When the team comes back, we can go and see that. And so especially now as we move like into our thirties as adults and move towards having kids and some of my friends from them have kids, you know, we all talk about what it'll be like to bring them to see the Sonics because of what it meant to us. What shoes were you wearing? Um, so for that one, I believe I was wearing and one silky smooth mids. My friend was wearing Adidas T-Mac one all-star edition in silver and black. I was so jealous of him. Uh, h- how did you get tickets to that game? Uh, I think we all just went and bought them. They had a discount, like two for one for that game. And it was the first time the Sonics clinched a playoff berth with Nate McMillan as the head coach in 2002. We beat the Los Angeles Clippers. What went through your mind the day you found out that the
0: city had settled for the Sonics to move to Oklahoma City?
1: I was paranoid they were going to do that for about three weeks before, because every time then Mayor Nichols had a press conference and somebody would ask him, is there any way you could see this happening, he would do the political thing of talking around the answer. And he always left that door open that they might do it. And when it was actually announced, I'll remember three things forever, it was the first time I'd actually cried since my grandfather died two years earlier, because for me that's not a basketball team. I get, for a lot of people, it's a sports team. For me, it's, like I said, that's my childhood memories, but not only that, that's my friendships, that's what motivated me to do what I do with my life now. So to lose that, and then have it be people like David Stern, who were in charge of the whole situation, saying, well, it's the fans' fault. It's your fault that they're leaving. And it's like, I sat there when we had Illumide, Oiadeji and Ansu Sesay as some of our best players. So it was crushing to me then, and then the other two things that stood out is the second Nichols said, we've sold the team, thunder and lightning struck over my house and it poured rain the second he said that. And the third was Elise Woodward was on sports radio at the time and they went to commercial and played Say It Ain't So by Weezer. So every time I hear that song, it just reminds me of that day. So those are my three memories from when that happened. And so what do you think a return of the Sonics would mean to you now that you're almost 10
0: years older from that day that you still remember those three events um what would it mean to you now
1: i think it's not so much what it means to me because as i got older as i moved away from it and got more you know there's more time between then and now it became i got those memories but there's a whole generation that hasn't had that um there's a whole generation who doesn't get to see steph curry come to town there's a whole generation who isn't as fortunate as me they didn't get to see lebron james play they have to listen to people online talk about how incredible it is to go to the game. They don't get to do that. They have to try to live vicariously if they can even go down to Portland. And a lot of kids don't have money to do that. If you're 10 years old, you're begging your mom to drive you 200 miles to see a basketball game and pay $80 for a ticket. So it's more about what it would mean for that generation and letting them have that role model the way I did. I mean, coaching these after-school programs, I still, the merchandise I see on kids the most is Seahawks and then Sonics gear to this day. uh, Even kids that aren't playing basketball, I'll see them in the hallway of a school and they're six years old. They weren't alive when the team was here and they'll have a Sonics hat on. They're 13 and they have like a vague memory of it and they'll they'll have a a Sean Kemp jersey on. They weren't even alive when he played here.
0: If you could get a message to eventual team ownership as to something that you'd like to see them do uh, if and when the Sonics do return, is there anything you'd like to ask of them?
1: Um, there's a few things, but they're not. again, they're not for me. I don't, you know, I don't care if there's free tickets. I don't care if there's discounted tickets. I mean, it's great what everyone has done to fight to get this team back. But for me, it would be what they used to do, um, rebuilding basketball courts, rebuilding playgrounds, uh, sponsoring kids to go to their basketball camps, and then discount tickets. And the biggest one, discount tickets for kids, I should say, discount tickets for kids. Uh, and the biggest one for me is bring back the Read to Achieve program which when I was a kid, you had a little sheet you get at the start of each month, and you were supposed to read 30 minutes a day. And if you filled all that out, you got entered into a Raffle to Win Sonics tickets or Seahawks autographed stuff. And when I was a kid, it was the Sonics, the Seahawks, the Mariners, and the then minor league Sounders all participated. By the time I finished middle school, I think it was the Sonics was it. And then they left, and so it's gone. And it's just a great way to get kids who maybe don't, want, don't feel their book smart to go, but if I do this, there's that reward. And again, it's not, oh, I got a little letter A on my paper. It's I get to go and sit and watch the players I admire playing. So do that and reach out so kids get to experience in the way I did. I know they're not going to have $9 tickets the way it was when I was a kid. Just make sure there's a way for kids to get there and see these players. Any concluding thoughts? I know there's a lot of people who are opposed to the arena, uh, my mom is a special education teacher. My mo- my dad is a union steward. So I know what it's like to come from a working class background. I know what it's like. People worry about education funding. This now is a completely privately funded project. This is essentially the best arena deal for a pro sports team in the history of the United States. You are getting a state of the art arena for free. So I don't see any negatives.
0: Colin, thank you so much for your time. And it was really nice to meet you and hear your perspective today. Thank you for having me. We are bringing you in-depth perspectives on what a return of the Sonics would mean for the children of Seattle. But before we get to the last interview of the episode, let's hear more from my followers in 140 characters or less. Jim tweeted, Build in Soto. No third party. Quicker line of sight to pro teams. Better fan experience. Patrick 20 wrote, Build it at Soto. Better infrastructure with many transportation options compared to the Seattle Center, which is terrible with Mercer Street. And J.P. Lowe wrote, because we never should have lost the Sonics now and in Soto. So while some fans are eager to see a return of the Sonics and hope for the Soto Arena in particular, I sought a further understanding of what professional basketball in the city would mean to our children. For an academic perspective on the role of sports in personal development and the potential impact of an NBA franchise, join me as I sit down with Professor Pat Doble. I'm here at the University of Washington with Professor Pat Doble. Professor Doble is the John and Marguerite walker Corberly Professor in Public Service at the Evans School. He got his Ph.D. at Princeton University. Pat, thank you for joining me today.
3: Jeff, thank you for having me. Uh, so why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself? Uh, I've been here at the University of Washington for over three decades, and my fields of interest in teaching are strategy, ethics, and leadership and i got involved in the whole issue of sports by accidentally really the, the university of washington athletic program went through some immense scandals about 15 20 years ago and as a result of that they were put on academic probation and the university was looking for someone to help clean things up and i had i chaired a number of ethics commissions i've been involved in writing ethics legislation And to be honest, the president called me up and asked me if I would be part of the oversight process for the NCAA for reviewing the athletic department. So that's how I got involved in athletics. My main field, like I said, is public ethics and strategy and working in those areas.
0: And so you've written a little bit about ethics in sports with Point of the Game. Can you tell me a little bit about
3: Point of the Game? What really transformed me was getting connected with and getting to work with young student athletes. The University of Washington has about 615 of them. And I was just deeply moved by them as human beings. And I was challenged by the demands we put upon them, which is essentially holding a full-time job while asking them to be effective and impactful students. And so I began to ask the question, two questions. One, Why are athletics at a university, and why do we as Americans take athletics so seriously? And to answer those, I started a blog called Point of the Game.
0: And so what are some of
3: the reasons why sports belongs in academic institutions? That's a good question. The relationship between sports and American academia is an accident. It grew from an old English tradition that saw the development of the body and the mind as interconnected. It was very Aristotelian. It grew from the kind of classical Greek conception of the development of the whole person. And in the 1850s, 1860s, American universities actually had physical education requirements. And participation in sports was seen as an extension of intellectual development. And there's two kinds of sports. There's the sports that are largely individual a tennis player, um, a diver, a swimmer. These are sports that are fundamentally about the ability to compete against yourself in parallel with others. There's a lot of characterological issues about self discipline and focus and mastery and sacrifice and working through adversity to achieve outcomes. But the team sports, it's a whole other range. You learn to collaboratively work with others. You are simultaneously collaborating with and cooperating with the same people, very much like you'll find working for a business or a corporation. The people you work with are both your competitors and your collaborators. So there's a whole emotional and intellectual and moral skill set there. You learn to sometimes sacrifice your own potential growth and contribution to contribute to a larger purpose. So I think there's significant character dimensions, self-development dimensions, self-sacrifice dimensions, as well as issues of learning to practice loyalty and commitment to each other that can grow from a good athletic experience.
0: And so you've worked directly with a lot of the athletes going through those experiences and the lessons as as faculty representative, are there similar lessons that could be taken from spectating of sports?
3: That's a really good question. I actually wrote once in my blog, Sport of the Game, on the difference between being a fan and a spectator. And I, I think one of the issues that's involved here is a spectator can participate in a a kind of different way. Like if you go to a play or you go to a symphony, you can experience and be moved emotionally and intellectually and even cognitively by the experience of being there. And then I think there's the fan. And the fan's a different creature. I think a fan is someone who has invested part of their identity into the fate of the sports team. I have a a kind of theory, really, about why a lot of Americans take sports so seriously. And it goes, goes back to the fact that we are a very mobile society. Americans are constantly moving. And sources of identification beyond race and ethnicity thin out. There are few sources of geographically mobile identities. Sports is one. A lot of Americans and I'm not talking about everyone, it's really bimodal. About 50% of Americans take sports seriously and integrate it into their identities, and then about 50% could care less, which leads to a lot of interesting discussions, either in a marriage where you get someone who's a sports nut and someone who's not are in a political environment. So people carry this with them as part of an identity, and then they anchor themselves. One way to reaffiliate when you've moved to a new place is to connect your sports loyalties to the local team. Our fascination with sports is tied to one of the solutions American developed, so to how do I maintain a stable identity across geographic and economic and social mobility?
0: Why do you think cities are eager to attract professional sports teams?
3: I think that's a really important question in it. It has a complicated answer, and let me start by saying it's almost never economics. Study after study demonstrates that the projected economic payoff of these sports places almost never pans out. I think the real reason cities look for sports teams is about prestige, reputation, and identity or community cities use their sports teams as marketing mechanisms to attract industry. So it becomes prestigious, and then it becomes part of cities that are going out trying to get new investment by saying, see, we're worth something. We actually are on the map, This is the argument. I haven't seen the data. Sometimes it makes it easier to recruit people, not because they're sports fans, but because they at least recognize cities.
0: So if there's a a member of the 50% of people who do not care about sports, and, and they live here in Seattle, connect the dots for them what you believe the reputation and the prestige could mean to that person.
3: What Seattle has recently is the two Super Bowl experiences. I think, and this is that, that third issue about identity and community, there's no real data to suggest this. It's all almost overwhelmingly anecdotal, but anyone who's experienced it, it's pretty real. That sports creates a matrix of language, a symbolic identity, and a way of connecting to each other that permits people across boundaries to talk to each other and identify with each other. I think the modern cities are so sprawling and so diverse that they're desperate to find anything that enables people to identify with Seattle as an entity rather than a city that provides services in a city that that you have to pay taxes to. I think when you look at the Sonics, the question emerges is, what do the Sonics add to the prestige and reputation of a city that already has three major sports teams. And I don't know. I, I think that what's interesting to me about the Sonics is that it's a much narrower group of people who wanna bring this back. I think they're very intense. I think they are fun addicts about it. So I think what we, you would do is you would mobilize a very intense group of population. I don't know how much of the kind of spillover you would get of say what we saw with the Seahawks, who have become almost a religion.
0: And so if the Sonics are brought back to Seattle, what do you think could be done or should be done to maximize the payoff to all of the Seattle residents?
3: I think the interesting point here is, if you look what happened to Cleveland with the Cavaliers and with what LeBron James was able to do, that NBA story became much more powerful for that city. It became uh, an element of community and of lore within the city. So maybe there's the capacity for that. What Seattle has recently is the two Super Bowl experiences. Quite frankly, an NBA team that's mediocre is gonna contribute very little and is gonna have very little capacity to bring other people in to the level of kind of satisfaction you might find from that.
0: And in terms of the lessons that you described for athletes who are performing, could having a basketball team here pass any of those lessons on to people who are watching
3: or rooting for the Sonics? It's not clear to me that the NBA, as a cultural athletic institution, does a lot of role modeling for young men and women. Uh, I think there are such deep flaws in the model of the development of our student basketball players that what you get is extremely young individuals with a lot of money under managed. So you get this, this, this huge spillover effect of young people, young males by and large, who have not had the chance to develop any level of significant emotional maturity. And so they have to play that out as newly minted millionaires in front of everyone. Uh, I think of all the sports available right now, the NBA is probably the least effective at projecting role models for young student athletes. Do you have any concluding thoughts on what the Sonics might
0: mean to the city now that it's grown so much since they last were here?
3: Let me answer that with a general point and, and ask what the Sonics' return might do. And that is one of the things we know about sports as an activity is that young kids, ages 6 to 14, if they are involved in sports— they tend to get less involved in substance abuse issues, less involved in gang issues. They actually tend to stay in school longer. And and this is really ironic, they oftentimes have higher GPAs. So that a youth sports culture can in fact be a real advantage for a city in terms of keeping kids in school, keeping them away from some of the other temptations and in funneling them forward. I think one of the things that uh, a number of the professional teams have done well recently is investing back in the community in youth sports. And so that uh, you see this with the Sounders, you see this with the Mariners, you see this with the Seahawks. I think the, the Sonics, if they came back, because you have some really socially disadvantaged populations where football is a critical practice, a critical world that people use to get out. I think if they could invest actively in that, and you've seen retiring NBA players come back and contribute to the community because that was their way out, I think the Sonics could have a really interesting impact, not at this level of prestige and reputation, but at a level of investing in the community to help that path for young men and young women who who see basketball as a way out and it's you know statistically it's not going to be but if you can educate them and keep them in school through basketball you will have done some really good stuff.
0: Professor Doble, thank you very much for your time and your expertise and your perspective on the issue. Thank Jeff, you. Jeff, thank you very
3: much for having me.
0: That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Have an opinion to share about what the Sonics meant to your childhood? reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman. I'm eager to hear your perspective. I've truly enjoyed seeing many people voice their opinions on the subjects from previous episodes. We are midway through the second season of Seattle Growth Podcast, exploring what a return of the Sonics would mean to you and life in the city. And as a return of the Sonics becomes increasingly likely, it is a subject that has people buzzing. As an indicator, one need look no further than the media attention given to this season of Seattle Growth Podcast. I was kindly invited to sit down with sports radio legend Dave Softy-Mahler on Sports Radio KJR. I encourage you to tune in to 9.50 on your AM dial weekdays 3 to 6.30 PM or check out his podcast on iTunes. I also want to thank Tom Glasgow at Como Radio who you could tune in on weekdays 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. on 1000 on your AM dial. I also got a chance to sit down with Tyler Davis-Jones and Phil Greeley in their Rise Seattle podcast. It's a great podcast looking at what people are doing to contribute to this city, and I encourage you to check it out on iTunes or visit riseseattlepodcast.com. Love Seattle Growth Podcast and can't get enough? You can find my guest appearances in these shows and more at seattlegrowthpodcast.com backslash media. Next week on Seattle Growth Podcast, we will explore how a return of the Sonics would affect the city's charities. I sit down again with three-time NBA all-star Detlef Schrempf. His Detlef Shrimp Foundation has raised over $19 million and contributed to over 140 organizations.
3: I feel I'm, I'm very privileged. Um, you know, I played basketball. Um, it allowed me to go to college. Uh, it allowed me to do a lot of things, but I played basketball. Uh, it's not like I'm, you know, saving lives. And I know there are a lot of people that are not very privileged uh, growing up. Uh, so I would like to even the playing field. Uh, I think that's kind of, you know, uh, part of what our job is as a human being you'll get to hear a human story of
0: somebody impacted by the foundation.
3: You know, when you're nine and your parents tell you that they have AIDS and that they might die, it's just hard to understand. I went into the experience just scared and just feeling alienated and feeling alone. Um, And so Rise and Shine was the place that kind of took away that. Just knowing what Detlef brought to to Rise and Shine, I know that was one person, and he he made the world a difference for Rise and Shine. Any bigger pool of of athletes in our city is a good thing. One, it takes one of them to make a bigger difference.
0: Next week's episode will give you a better understanding of what we want to ask from our professional athletes to maximize the value that professional sports can bring to a community. I hope you'll join me next week. In the meantime, please subscribe to Seattle Growth Podcast for free on iTunes and be sure to rate the podcast as well. I've appreciated reading the feedback and cherish my five-star rating that you have kindly given to me. I'm Jeff Schulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the second season of Seattle Growth Podcast.